There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Aura Ogunbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Biryani, jollof, special fried, you name it. Rice dishes make up a key part of many cultures' cuisines. But environmental changes and soaring demand are threatening the production of rice and the lives of the farmers who grow it. And the death of a panda in Tennessee has drawn a lot of attention, particularly from Chinese nationalists who claim it was a result of anti-China sentiment in America. We look into the long-running role of pandas as furry soft power. But first... Donald Trump was a president of many firsts, and at the end of last month, he chalked up another one when he became the first president to be indicted. Yesterday, the details of that indictment were at last unsealed, and Mr. Trump was back as ringmaster of a media circus that he's always relished. On Monday, Donald Trump flew from his home in Palm Beach from Mar-a-Lago to New York, and he stayed overnight at Trump Tower. John Fasman is... Well, you guys know who John Fasman is. And then on Tuesday afternoon, a motorcade delivered him to the Manhattan Criminal Courts building. Where he went into the district attorney's office and he was fingerprinted. He was given a number like every other criminal defendant in the New York court system. And he became the first former American president to be charged with a crime. Donald Trump, now technically under arrest after... Walking inside and what was the atmosphere like outside the courthouse? Well, I was down in Lower Manhattan in a park across from the criminal courts building. The New York Young Republicans Club had called a rally there to start at 10.30. By the time I got there at about 10.15, it was already really lively. Police had divided the park in two with a lane running down the middle and half the park was given over to pro-Trump demonstrators, and the other half was given over to anti-Trump demonstrators. Trump's a dick! That I said that. <laughs> it seemed to me there were roughly equal numbers of both. That man across the street, District Attorney Alvin Bragg, is horrible. The people were there to vent and shout at each other and perform for the media. They are torturing this man and his family. I say God bless President Trump. God bless his family, and God bless the United States of America, because these are communistic tactics they're using on us, and we will not give in to that. America will never give in to that. We will never be... It really was politics as pro wrestling. You know, everyone was a character. Everyone was acting for the cameras. And when y'all find out the reality and the truth to this matter, your heads are gonna spin. That's all I gotta say about that. And on that note, let's do a little fashion show, shall we? 
you know, I've interviewed a lot of people in a lot of places and never have I found a greater concentration of people more eager to talk than I did there. So that was going on in the morning. You had a couple of members of Congress stop by. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is one of Trump's most ardent supporters in Congress, she showed up and spoke for about 10 minutes. You had Jamal Bowman, who is a left-wing congressman from outside New York. He's actually my own congressman. He was there playing for the cameras for a few minutes. America needs a reckoning, and I think Trump is essential to that reckoning. And then Trump showed up a little after 1.30. The story was he was going to go in by a secure side entrance. That wasn't the case. He waved supporters briefly and then went inside. And then he was arraigned. There was no mugshot taken. A lot of people thought there would be, but in fact, that's just customary. That's not that's not a legal requirement. But he was arraigned in court at 2.15, and all 34 charges against him were unveiled there. And a lot of this has been telegraphed for weeks, but let's get into the details here. What was the substance of the charges? Any surprises in there? There were no real surprises. I mean, nobody knew exactly what the charges would be or how many of them there would be. In the end, there were 34 counts of falsifying business records in New York, that's known as a Class E felony. And what that means is each count carries a maximum sentence of four years in prison. There's no minimum sentence required. In practice, a lot of people facing these charges often get off with a fine. I don't think you should conclude that jail time is a foregone conclusion, even if Donald Trump is found guilty. Now, as for what the charges pertain to, they all pertain to stories that were pretty well known before. They stem from three separate allegations. One is that the Trump organization paid off a doorman who claimed to know that Donald Trump fathered a child out of wedlock. The second was a hush money payment carried out by Michael Cohen, his former fixer to Stormy Daniels, an adult film actress with whom he allegedly had an affair. And the third was a similar payment made by the National Enquirer. That's a tabloid. The editor is a longtime friend of Donald Trump. And that payment was allegedly made to a woman named Karen McDougal, who is a former Playboy Playmate with whom Donald Trump also allegedly had an affair. Now, where the criminality attaches, it's not necessarily legal to arrange or to make hush money payoffs. The criminality attaches is under New York law. Those transactions become criminal when they're made in furtherance of another crime. And the theory of the case that seems to be put forward by Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan District Attorney, is that these payments were made to further his presidential campaign. Now, there's a New York state election law that makes it a crime, although a misdemeanor, to promote or prevent a political candidate from advancing by using unlawful means. They were also made to circumvent federal campaign law. And he alleges there may have been some misleading payments made to mislead authorities for tax purposes. So that's the underlying crime as far as we know so far. There hasn't been a case like this brought against a former president or against a defendant of this stature, but these sorts of cases do get prosecuted by Manhattan's district attorney often enough. Perhaps the least surprising part of it is that at the end, Donald Trump pled not guilty to all charges. And in thinking about things that weren't so certain, we heard a couple of weeks ago that Mr. Trump called for his supporters to, to turn out in great numbers if he were to be arrested. How did that pan out in the end? What was it like outside the courthouse afterwards? There were fears going into this that we would see something like another January 6th riot. That didn't happen. It didn't happen, I think, for a number of reasons. You know, the principal one being January 6th happened, and a lot of people have been charged. And I think you had people wondering 
whether it was worth the possibility of jail time to protest on behalf of Donald Trump. After the arraignment, Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, gave a short news conference. Good afternoon. These are felony crimes in New York State. No matter who you are, we cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. He was fairly terse when asked questions. He said, I believe the charges that were brought were the ones that were brought, and that's just where it stands. The defendant claimed that he was paying Michael Cohen. But in the end, the fears of widespread protest, the fears of violence, the fears of unrest were unfounded. It was a pretty calm day. And what did Mr. Trump himself have to say about it all? After the court appearance, he went straight home. There was a thought initially that he would say a few things to his supporters outside. He didn't do that. Instead, he made a televised speech from Mar-a-Lago at about 8.20 p.m. Thank you very much, everybody. We have to save our country. This speech, he was seething and he was angry. He was visibly furious. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. He was obsessed with his own victimhood. From the beginning, the Democrats spied on my campaign. The speech was full of really internecine grievances. They attacked me with an onslaught of fraudulent investigations. Russia, Russia, Russia. Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. And he really portrayed himself as the world's biggest victim of a politically motivated witch hunt. Unconstitutional raid on... I feel like I've heard that phrase before. Um, what, what happens now? Well, the Sixth Amendment does guarantee the right to a speedy trial, but often that seems measured in geologic time. And so the next court appearance for Donald Trump is going to be on December 4th. Yes, December 4th. And then the trial will get underway in January 2024. That is only two months ahead of the Iowa caucuses. So the Republican primary will be well and truly in full swing by then. The other thing that's going to happen is that I imagine Donald Trump's lawyers will move to get these charges dismissed. They may move for a change of venue. The chances that any of those tactics have of succeeding, I don't really know. I guess that they're fairly slim right now, but we'll see how it plays out. But he won't be in court for quite a long time. And in fact, I think it's probably unlikely that, that he sees the inside of a prison from these charges. And we've talked on the show before about whether this would actually put Mr. Trump uh, in a better position for his presidential run next year. What's your take on that? Well, really, there are two ways to look at this question. The first is that it's hard to imagine new voters rallying to his side. As I said, his speech was very angry, and it's generally a rule in American politics. It was not in 2016, which was freakish, but it's generally a rule that the more optimistic candidate wins. And he has been sounding notes of just complete pessimism. The country's going to hell. The justice system going to hell. This country is a laughing stock. It's difficult to see new voters rallying to him. But what it really does is it kind of freezes the Republican presidential field, right? Because Republicans have rallied around him. They've said that these charges are politically motivated. Ron DeSantis, who's perhaps his strongest rival, the governor of Florida, assailed what he called a Soros-backed prosecutor. But really, the other candidates have rallied around him, and that puts them in an awkward position because it makes them say something along the lines of, Donald Trump was a great president. I share his values. He's politically persecuted. But you should vote for me because... Because why? It makes it very hard for them to stake out a position against Trump unless one of them were going to run directly at him. 
And you said it's it's unlikely if he were convicted that he would do time for these charges. But what chances do you think he will be convicted and what would it mean if he were? Well, I'm reluctant to make a prediction here. On the one hand, you'd like to think that Alvin Bragg doesn't underestimate the gravity of the moment and he wouldn't bring charges unless he was pretty certain of a conviction. On the other hand, we're really off the map here. These are uncharted waters. Alvin Bragg, whatever the merits of the charges on their face, he's a political actor who ran for office, which leaves him vulnerable to the charge that this is a politically motivated prosecution. Now, as for Donald Trump's broader legal problems, this case is just the tip of the iceberg. There are five other active investigations into Trump at the moment, and two of these could be much more serious for him. One of them is a federal investigation into his efforts to overturn the 2020 election, including his role in inciting the January 6th riots. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. The other involves his efforts to undermine the election in Georgia, where he was caught on tape pressuring Georgia's secretary of state to find me 11,780 votes. I just want to find 11,780 votes. That case is being brought by Fannie Willis in Fulton County. That could be quite serious. There are also civil cases. Letitia James, New York's district attorney, has been looking into his business practices. So he could find himself in trouble on a lot of different fronts. So Donald Trump saw the inside of a courtroom. It's the first time a former U.S. president has been in this position. It may well not be the last time that Donald Trump finds himself in this position, though. Thanks for your time, John. Good to have you back on the show. Jason, thanks very much. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I went to Bazi Akbarpur, a small village in the northern Indian state of Haryana. Vishnu Padmanabhan is a data journalist at The Economist. Over there, I met with a group of farmers who grow rice. In India, like in other parts of Asia, rice is the primary source of sustenance. But its production is spluttering. The farmers and I talked about climate change. They said that it's really affecting their crops. This year, for instance, some of them expect yields to be 30% less than normal because of how early the summer has arrived. And it's a pressing issue because hundreds of millions of farmers like them across Asia depend on rice for a livelihood. In the last few years, the lives have become increasingly difficult. And why is that? Why is life getting more difficult for these rice farmers? So there are many reasons. Producing rice requires a lot of land, water and labor. And all of these resources are now becoming scarcer. And then climate change is also a big issue. As temperatures rise because of climate change, yields are getting affected. For example, a study in 2004 found that 
a one degree increase in minimum temperatures leads to a 10% decline in rice yields. Climate change is also causing other extreme weather events like floods, which can wipe out entire harvests. For example, last year in Pakistan, during the devastating floods there, 15% of the country's rice harvest was wiped out. And all of this is happening as the demand for rice from both Asia and Africa is soaring. And Vishnu, how much demand are we talking about here on a global level? It's huge because the vast majority of the world's rice is consumed by Asians. And by 2015, it's predicted that the population of Asia will rise from 4.7 billion currently to 5.3 billion. According to one estimate, to give you a context of how much rice Asians eat, the UN estimates that the average annual per capita consumption of rice in Asia is 77 kg. That's more than what Europeans, Africans and Americans eat put together. And then there's also a huge, going to be a huge demand surge from Africa as well, where population is increasing and their appetite for rice is growing as well. And so taken together, all of this is expected to drive a 30% increase in global rice consumption. That's according to one estimate by a study published last year in the journal Nature Food. And rising demand will also cause another problem because of the nutritional quality in rice. Rice is high in glucose and low in iron and zinc, so two important micronutrients. So that causes two issues, which we are seeing in South Asia, diabetes and also persistent malnutrition. Okay, so you've mentioned the health issues, but I presume that all this soaring demand is also leading to more pressure on the environment, right? Yes, exactly. And because rice production produces a lot of greenhouse gas emissions itself, that's because when you irrigate a paddy, you need to flood the field with water. And when you do that, the water starves the underlying soil of oxygen. And without the oxygen, that creates a condition for a certain type of bacteria that emits a lot of methane to flourish. And because of that, it's estimated that rice production is responsible for 12% of the world's total methane emissions and around 1.5% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. That's a footprint that's comparable to that of the entire aviation sector. And in some parts of Asia, it's even higher. In Vietnam, for example, paddy production there produces as much greenhouse gases as the country's entire transportation sector. Okay, so if rice is the problem here, have governments tried getting people to switch to other grains? Yes. And it's only in the richest Asian countries, such as Japan and South Koreans, where people have sort of given up on rice in place of other things like bread, meat, and pasta. But in other countries, governments are trying to change people's habits. At India's request, the UN has declared 2023 as the year of the millet, a crop that requires far less water for consumption. And it also has higher nutritional quality. Indonesia's government is also doing something similar. But as of now, most people in these countries still love rice. So in Delhi, for example, it's only the elites who would choose a biryani made of millet over a rice one. But the idea is that where elites lead, masses will often follow. And if a big market emerges, it would entice some farmers to switch. And perhaps, if not switch, at least to diversify the crops. But on its own, this is not a fix for the crisis. Well, that's kind of understandable. I mean, fundamentally altering the diet of an entire continent does seem like a stretch, especially when rice has been a staple for so long. So what other solutions are there? So there are several partial solutions. And for example, there are many rice varieties that can be planted that are far less resource intensive or more nutritious. I spoke to Jean Ballier of the International Rice Research Institute. Iri spends a lot of time thinking about solutions to the rice problem Asia and the world is facing. So Erie is well-placed to actually try to bring about the new revolution, new varieties, high-yielding varieties, stress-tolerant varieties. And the revolution is not so much about yields only. 
it is actually varieties that would combine a number of uh, traits that would be uh, higher yielding, but at the same time more stress tolerant, the, the point on climate change, and at the same time more nutritious. So that's, the, that's really the innovation and the new frontier in research and the new paradigm. So scientists at ARI and other national research outfits have developed an assortment of rice varieties that are resistant to floods, drought, and heat. They've also created more nutritious grains of rice, which have more iron and zinc. These type of varieties, combined with innovations in crop management, can significantly reduce the environmental damage of rice and increase yields. And several pilots and studies across Asia have shown this. But the challenge right now is expanding from sort of small experiments and pilots to implementation at scale. Many farmers are averse to trying something new. For example, a study in India found that just 26% of farmers across the country had planted a variety of rice that had been developed since 2004. Okay, personally, I'm a rice lover, and I think I'm really going to struggle to give up rice. So for those of us who are a bit more hesitant, how could we be encouraged to experiment? So governments can play a big role in this. They can steer farmers away from rice by highlighting the benefits of new varieties and propagating their adoption. One example of how to do this comes from Vietnam, where the government has announced an ambitious plan to cultivate low-carbon rice on 1 million hectares. And the key to Vietnam's success is that it has sold farmers on the fact that adopting these varieties of rice that are more climate-friendly is not a burden to them, but will actually help them reduce costs and increase yields. And so other governments need to take a similar approach. Equally, they should also take a bottom-up approach where they work with farmers on the field to show them how these new varieties work, what type of crop management techniques they can use. And if governments do all of this, the rewards could be huge. More sustainable cultivation can increase yields and reduce costs. This would give farmers higher and steadier incomes. It will also make them more resilient to climate change and reduce their contribution to it. Most importantly, these changes could guarantee food security, not just for Asia, but for the whole world. Vishnu, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Despite his name meaning happy, happy, Lala, a giant panda living at Memphis Zoo, began looking a little down late last year. That prompted animal rights activists to begin advocating a return to China for Lala and his partner, Yaya. But by February, it was too late. They say he died peacefully in his sleep early this week. Prior to his death, Memphis Zoo officials claim he was in good health. The zoo's director paid tribute to the departed bear. He was easygoing, playful, and a beautiful representation of his species. But that wasn't enough to deflect questions about how the bear had died. We reviewed video footage for days leading up to this, and we saw no indication that, that would lead us to believe that there was anything wrong with Lola. A team of American and Chinese experts was dispatched to Memphis to conduct an investigation. An early report on the death of the giant male panda Lola indicates he died of heart disease. Lola Those findings, though, have been questioned by others. And that's not the end of the story. Unfortunately, since Lola died, Lola's partner, Yaya, which means cute girl, started losing clumps of hair and is generally looking quite sick. That's a huge source of worry to a lot of people over here. Chinese people like pandas and especially Chinese nationalists. Gabriel Crossley is a China correspondent for The Economist. There's some concerns that Yaya might be getting mistreated as a result of anti-Chinese sentiment 
in America. And so they started a campaign to bring her back to China. And so how widespread is this campaign? Is this something that just the nationalists are focusing on? No, it's pretty big. I think concern for pandas is something which a lot of Chinese people will will buy into. So we've had people putting up billboards in several Chinese cities showing pictures of Yaya looking miserable. There's overseas Chinese in America who've been checking up on her, visiting Memphis Zoo and taking videos, taking photos, sending them back to people who are concerned within China. And people are also checking up on pandas in other zoos. So in other countries, some people checked out the two pandas in Moscow Zoo and found, perhaps unsurprisingly, that Russia was doing a great job in caring for its pandas. Generally speaking, the Chinese foreign ministry and Chinese diplomats tend to fan this kind of nationalist outrage. In this case, though, they've been holding back and calling for calm. Diplomats in America visited Memphis Zoo and said that the pandas are in fact being cared for. And the official body which arranges these loans of pandas also had a look and said that Yaya is actually just quite old and suffering from a skin condition. So if even the officials normally given to uh, making a big deal of this are saying it's not what you think, then why is this such a big deal? Panda diplomacy is actually a big deal for China. They've been doing this for many decades, around 20 countries currently borrowing pandas from the Chinese government. Technically, uh, all the pandas don't belong to these countries. They all revert to the Chinese state and have to be returned. They're, they're on lease, basically. You're leasing a bear. Exactly. You're leasing the bears. You're leasing the bears for a cost. You pay up to a million dollars a year. And then if a cub is born, you have to cough up a bit more to keep it. The bears will generally be returned after a decade or so, so they can die or spend their last days in China. For China, this is a pretty good deal. They get the money and it's also a nice cuddly symbol for an authoritarian state to have. Many people's experiences of the Chinese state will be visiting one of these pandas in a zoo. It's also good for conservation efforts. Uh, The species was reclassified as vulnerable up from endangered in recent years. But for this particular kerfuffle, do you think it reflects a wider issue, the souring of America-China relations? I think maybe the immediate suspicion of mistreatment by America perhaps wouldn't have happened without the foreign ministry and state media here promoting pretty negative stuff about America for the last recent years. But I don't think this is really a big issue for China-American relations. And it's pretty clear that the Chinese officials are also trying to keep it pretty separate. But even before Lola died, the Chinese government was planning to repatriate the pair of pandas from Memphis back to China. That's still going ahead. Yaya is expected back in China later in April. Thanks very much for your time, Gabriel. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.